Amen. Well, you guys can have a seat. What is up, Cell Company? My name is Jonathan Randall. I serve as uh, the director on staff. I am so glad to be with you. Whether you are in the room or you are tuning on to our live stream, this is one of my favorite days of the week to be here with you guys. And tonight, I'm especially excited because we are going to baptize seven people, you all. This is one of my favorite things to celebrate. Guys, that is seven real people who are going to get up here and get in the tanks, and they are going to declare that Jesus, the Son of God, has encountered them, has changed their life forever, that they have placed their faith in Jesus, and they are not looking back. That, that God, the same God who spoke 2,000 years ago to bring Jesus out of the grave, still speaks today, and he still wants to change lives. And so I am pumped for tonight. Hey, Kevin already said this, but each one of those baptisms... It represents a new life. I don't want us to miss the miracle of what this is. When they go under the waters, what that represents symbolically is that their old way of life is over. When they come up out of the waters, what that represents is that they have a new life in Christ. And make no mistake, guys, that is a miracle. That is a miracle. And I don't want us to miss this. Okay, this water over here, it's not holy water. Briar and Justin filled up this tank with hose water earlier today. It's not holy water. But this is a holy moment because God loves to take dead things and make them alive. Every single person who's getting baptized tonight, even though they are physically alive, at one point in their life, they were spiritually dead. What that means is they did not have the capabilities to respond to God. They did not have the right heart posture towards God. They did not have the spiritual capacity to respond to God in faith, but God entered into their lives and got deep into their hearts and made it start beating for Jesus and made them spiritually alive. So whether they've grown up in the church and they've heard the gospel their whole lives, and they could spit back the answers that they learned in Sunday school, or whether this, uh, the, the person literally heard about the gospel this semester. Both of these people, are, we are celebrating that are, they are miracles. They are miracles tonight because our God makes dead people alive. Salt Company, this is why we exist. If you didn't know, we are part of City Light Church. And City Light Church has a mission. We want to multiply disciples and churches. And each person that's going to get baptized tonight is a new disciple. But here's our hope for them. Our hope for them that, is that tonight is not the end. That tonight is actually the beginning. My hope and my prayer and my vision is that we are back here next year. And those people who are going to get baptized tonight are going to be back here next year. But they're not going to get baptized. They're going to be the ones baptizing somebody else. They're going to be the ones that go out into their college campus, and they're going to share Jesus with someone who needs to hear that. And I'm believing, and I know because God loves to save, that those people are going to hear about Jesus, and they're going to respond to the gospel in faith, and they're going to come here, and a year later, we're going to be celebrating their baptism. And then they're going to go out, and they're going to share Jesus, and more and more disciples are going to fill this room until eventually we just have to plant a church because we can't even literally meet in this building. That's my hope and my prayer and my vision for everyone here. If you can't tell, I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited about tonight. I think the testimonies that you're going to hear uh, are going to speak 
louder than anything uh, that I could say. But they do pay me to teach the Bible, and so uh, we are going to teach from the sermon. And we'd be remiss, actually, if we didn't open up God's Word. And remember that as we celebrate these baptism stories, it's the God of the universe. It's God's Word that has written their story. And so we need to hear, honestly, from Him tonight. So if you've got your Bibles, open it up to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read starting in verse 9. This story says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. We've been in a teaching series uh, called The Kingdom Tour. And in The Kingdom Tour, what we've seen is that Jesus in Luke 9, 51, sets his face towards Jerusalem. And he goes on this teaching tour from town to town to town. That, and it's eventually going to take him to Jerusalem. And e- each town, he declares what the kingdom of God is like. And as he approaches Jerusalem, he will be crowned king when he eventually gets there. And in tonight's passage, we learn an essential truth, a very common truth that Jesus has been bringing up often in this tour. And the truth for us tonight that Jesus teaches is this. God humiliates the self-righteous, but makes the humble righteous. God humiliates the self-righteous, but makes the humble righteous. Righteous. You can write that down if you're taking notes or you're one of those types of people. Uh, this is my key uh, point for the night. If you don't get anything else from the text tonight, understand this key point. God humiliates the self-righteous but makes the humble righteous. Let's unpack this statement and uh, see it in our text. The first part is this. God humiliates the self-righteous. God humiliates the self-righteous. If we notice in verse 9, Jesus is telling this parable to uh, some people who had three specific characteristics. They are as follows. They trusted in themselves. They thought they were righteous. They looked down on other people. They trusted in themselves. They thought they were righteous, and they looked down on other people. In other words, these people were self-righteous. Now, in the story, these self-righteous people are represented by the Pharisee. Now, if you're familiar with their Bible, that might not seem like such a shock, but the original hearers, this would have been shocking to hear that the Pharisee is the bad guy in this story because by all accounts in their culture, a Pharisee was the best of the best. This is your straight A student. This is your uh, graduate with honors. This is the guy who spends his free time donating blood and serving at the homeless shelter. This is your best of the best kind of person. And yet we see that each one of these three characteristics gets exposed in the Pharisee by how he prays. We easily see that the guy trusted 
in himself. Notice how much he mentions himself in the prayer. Verse 11 and 12, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast. I give tithes of all I get. In just two verses, this guy says the word I five times. And if you notice, he's even literally praying by himself as if he doesn't need anyone else. I did this. I did that. I am awesome. I know it. This guy is full of himself. He trusts in himself. He also thought he was righteous by all that he did. If you notice in verse 12, it says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. His obedience is above and beyond even what the Old Testament law would have required of him. In the Old Testament law, you were actually only supposed to fast once a year. Once a year. This guy's fasting twice a week. You were also only supposed to tithe your crops and what you brought in as income. This guy is fasting everything that he has. He's going into his cupboards and fast, or tithing out of his spice rack. He's tithing out of his penny jar. He is tithing everything. This guy is the guy in your class that just wrecks the curve by doing all the extra credit and reading all the suggested reading at the end of your syllabus. This guy, you, you don't like this guy, right? He thinks he's righteous by all that he does. He also looked down on other people. If you notice in verse 11, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What's he doing there? He's comparing himself to these other people, and he's thinking he's better than them. Now, I think we read this story, and it's easy for us to dismiss this guy and think, I don't really have anything in common with him. That's not me. But I think for many of us, if we were to take a second look at this story, I think we do have more in common with them than we'd like to admit. Many of us trust in ourselves. Deep down in our heart of hearts, if we were honest, the way that we live our lives is this motto. Nobody knows how to direct my life better than me. Right? It's all about what I want to do when I want to do it. We've rejected the God of the universe. We've said, no, God, you don't have a right to tell me how to live. I want to live my own life. Our culture is even bought into this message. Our culture says, hey, believe in yourself. If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. If it feels good, then it must be good. Trust your emotions. Trust your desires. Trust your abilities. Trust in yourself. Our culture has a message of trust in anything but God. And we often look to ourselves. No wonder we've believed it when our culture is pushing it on us. I think many of us also think we're righteous. We may not think we're righteous according to God's standards, but we definitely think we're righteous according to our own. I'm basically a good person. I care about the right issues. I may not always act the right way, but I believe the right things. God owes me because I lived a particular life. We believe that we are righteous. I think we also look down on other people. You know how I know this? Because I was on social media during the election, right? This was constant. This ran rampant. Oh, I can't. You call yourself a Christian and you vote for Trump? That man is a bigot. That man is a racist. That man is a misogynist. Oh, you call yourself a Christian and you voted for Biden? That man is a baby killer. That man doesn't want anything to do with God's laws. He doesn't care about religious freedom, right? Oh, you didn't vote for either candidate? Do you even care about our country? It's just constant looking down on each other. The question for us tonight is this. Will we admit that we do this? Will we admit that we trust in ourselves, that we think we are righteous, that we look down on other people? Will we admit that? 
See, the, the text is saying that Jesus is actually sharing a parable. I don't have time to get into a lot of this, but we know from scriptures that a parable actually served a specific purpose. This isn't just a cute story that Jesus is using as an illustration. He told parables for a purpose, and we know that that purpose is this. A parable softens the heart of those who receive Jesus, but it actually hardens the heart of those who continue to reject Jesus. And here's the scary thing. If you're here tonight and you continue to reject Jesus over and over and over and over again, and you don't put your faith in Jesus, you will inevitably end up like the Pharisee. And you will scoff at the idea that you are him. You will refuse to believe it. Or let me put it another way. If we're failing to admit that we trust in ourselves, that we think we're righteous, that we look down on others, then we are actually in danger of rejecting Jesus himself. If we don't admit we're a sinner, then Jesus is of no value to us. And make no mistake, if we don't humble ourselves now and admit we are self-righteous, then God is going to one day on judgment day humiliate us by exposing the very self-righteous that we refuse to admit we had. That's the harshness of this parable. I've seen a lot of baptisms over the years. And as people come up and share their testimonies, two stories really emerge. There's the story of the irreligious person who said, I used to be involved in all kinds of sins that were obvious, like drunkenness and sexual immorality, but God saved me. And then there's the religious person who says, I used to be a self-righteous person that looked down on other people, that trusted in myself, that was concerned about my own righteousness. I was a self-righteous person and God saved me. There's the irreligious and there's the religious person. And I'm the one that grew up in the church. So I tended to shift more towards the religious side. And here's the thing. I was always jealous of the irreligious story because I saw their stories as, oh, that's incredible. That's amazing. That's awesome that God saved you from those sins. And I was jealous because I didn't see that God had saved me from those kinds of sins. But as I've gotten older, I've come to believe that my story might actually be more amazing my story might be more incredible because yes, God did not save me from the sins of sexual immorality and drunkenness, but God did save me from a more dangerous, elusive sin and that is the sin of believing that I wasn't even a sinner. Have you ever tried to share your testimony and say Jesus has saved me from my sins and then not been able to name them? Like sin is just some generic thing where you're just kind of a bad person. If you can't name your sins... If you can't name the very reason that Jesus came to earth, which was to die for sinners, if you can't name what he's actually saving you from, then what good is Jesus for you? See, my problem growing up in the church wasn't that I didn't know the right answers or understand the gospel. I grew up in a great church that taught those things. My problem was that I was blinded to the fact that I needed saving in the first place. When it came to telling my story of how Jesus saved me from my sins, I couldn't think of the sins that Jesus would save me from. And that's a dangerous place to be because it exposes the very self-righteousness that we need saving from. So if you're here tonight and you're failing to admit you're self-righteous, I pray that the God who opened up my eyes would open up your eyes. Don't leave here without seeing your sin and a need for a savior. If you don't humble yourself in here, you will be exposed as a self-righteous person out there. And God humiliates the self-righteous. Turn to him and become humble, and God 
will make you righteous. That's the second part of the main idea. God makes the humble righteous. God humiliates the self-righteous, but God makes the humble righteous. If we pick back up the text, we see that there's another person in this story. This person doesn't trust in himself. He doesn't think he's righteous. He doesn't have contempt for other people. Sounds like a great dude, right? Wrong. This guy represented in the story is the tax collector. A tax collector was the worst of the worst. This was a bad dude, okay? In the ancient culture of when this was written, the Roman Empire existed. It dominated the known world. And when they would come in, when the Roman army would come in and take over a people group, they would pay the people, the people that they conquered, they would pull out men and pay them to be tax collectors. And this is how they'd pay them. They'd say, hey, we want you to go raise money for the Roman government and anything you raise extra, you can keep. So if the Roman government wanted $1,000 and the tax collector went out and got $3,000, he could keep that $2,000. And that's how it worked. They were extortioners. They were mean. They were cruel. They beat people to get money. They manipulated people to get money, and they did it to their own kin. They did it to their own family. Guys, this is the worst of the worst. This is your mob bosses. This is your crooked politicians. In fact, a great modern equivalent of a tax collector would be a sex trafficker. That's who this is. And yet when the tax collector prays, we see a total opposite of how the Pharisee prayed. Notice the text says, but the tax collector standing far off would not lift his eyes to heaven. He didn't even feel like he had a right to pray. But he beat his breast as a sign of grief. That's a sign of remorse over sin. And he says, God, be merciful. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Some of you in this room, you're not like the Pharisees. You're a sinner and you know it. You've done everything in the book. In fact, you came here tonight with maybe a sense of guilt. You might even be sitting in the back and you feel like you don't belong here. Maybe you committed a sin yesterday. Maybe you committed a sin this morning. Maybe you committed a sin an hour before you showed up here and you're wondering, why am I here? Do I even deserve to be here? If that's you, you need to hear the good news of the gospel. And it's this, your sin does not disqualify you from mercy. Your sin actually qualifies you for mercy. Your sin doesn't disqualify you from mercy. It actually qualifies you for mercy. Think about what mercy is. It's a pardon. It says you can go free. It says you're forgiven. It says you have grace. If Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for sinners like you and like me, and we don't cry out for that mercy, Jesus is no, of no use for us. That's why he came, to give mercy for sinners. You're not disqualified for it. You're actually qualified for it. If you just would humble yourself and admit that you are a sinner. Guys, we could never do anything uh, more to make God love us any less. We could never do anything more to make God love us even more than he does right now. Guys, the gospel is this. You don't have to measure up to a particular standard in order to get God to love you, in order to get God to accept you. You don't have to get to a certain standard in order to maintain God's acceptance of you. You have God's 100% 
unfiltered love for you 100% of the time solely based on what Jesus Christ has done for you in his life, death, and resurrection. And if you are a sinner, you can respond to that here tonight. You can place your faith in Jesus here tonight. Those that admit they are a sinner and cry out to God for mercy are the humble ones that God makes righteous. You know what humility is? Humility is admitting that you need a savior. Humility is getting low and saying, I am a sinner, that I actually need God, that I need God in my life. Verse 14 says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to the house justified rather than the other. Went home justified rather than the other. Do you know what justification means? Real quick, I want us to understand this because this is a beautiful truth of the gospel. Justification is that God has given us mercy over our sin and he's also given us righteousness accredited to our account. Justification is God giving us mercy over our sin and he's given us righteousness in our account. Think of it as a, a, a resume. Pretend you are applying for a job to God and, and you have a resume and you are about ready to go into an interview with God and on your resume are written things like this, professional sinner, employee that lusts a lot, employee that uh, is doing things that are against God's rules. That's written on your resume. And Jesus comes and he gives you mercy and he wipes out what is on your resume and he gives you a blank slate. But that's not the end of the story. And yet so many people want to make that the end of the story. If, if, you, if all you have is a blank resume, then it's still up to you to put things on that resume of I'm a good person, I do the right thing, I deserve to be in heaven. And yet God gives you more than a blank resume. He gives you more than just mercy over your sin. He actually accredits righteousness to your account. What that means then in the analogy is that Jesus takes his own resume, scratches his name off, and puts yours and gives it to you. Now you tell me, if you apply for a job and God is your boss and you walk in with Christ's resume and written on that resume is son of God, perfect, the one in whom I'm well pleased, you tell me, is God gonna dismiss you and not hire you? No, no you will be welcomed into the presence of God. Guys, each one of these stories that we're gonna hear tonight is a person that has been justified. The mercy of God has canceled out their sin and the righteousness of God has been accredited to their account. Their old way of life is over. Their new way of life is just beginning. So as we go into a time of celebrating these baptisms, let me give us some coaching. Okay, baptisms are a lot like a wedding. When you go to a wedding celebration, the bride and the groom come up, they have vows to one another, they declare before everyone that they belong to one another, that they are now united to one another, that they are now one, right? What happens when the bride and the groom kiss and the, and the pastor says, I now declare them husband and wife? Yeah, we go nuts, we start clapping, we go crazy, right? Unless, I guess you date, used to date the person and then you just look at the ground and it gets awkward for everybody. Um, but you go nuts, you go crazy, right? That's, 
kind of what's happening here with baptism. When somebody says, I belong to Jesus, I declare that Jesus and me are united. I am, vowed, or I am vowing before everybody here, uh, whether you're on live stream or whether you're in the room, that Jesus is my savior, that we are one, that we are united. It is a lot like a marriage or a wedding celebration, and we need to celebrate that. So my coaching to you is when everybody comes up out of the water, Uh, and their new life in Christ is represented, I want you to go nuts. I want you to hoot, holler. I want you to clap. I want you to go crazy, okay? That is my coaching uh, for us here uh, as we get into baptism. So tonight, my hope, wherever you're at on the spectrum of Christianity, if you're the self-righteous person who grew up with religion, who grew up trying to think that I had to earn my way into heaven, or whether you're the irreligious person who had nothing to do with Christianity and you, you just heard the gospel maybe for the first time tonight, would both of you step out in faith, admit that you are a sinner, be humble before the God of the universe, and would he not only give you mercy, but would he make you righteous? I'm gonna pray to that end, and then we're gonna celebrate these baptisms. Jesus, I thank you for tonight. God, I don't know where each person in this room is. But you do. You created them. You know every detail on their lives. God, the scriptures say that you are a God that can literally speak galaxies into existence and yet still know every single hair on a human head. Who are we that you are mindful of us? God, 2,000 years ago, you weren't just thinking about us in heaven. You weren't just considering us. You weren't just looking at the world from your throne. But God, you stepped off of that. You took off, or you took on human flesh. You came to our world and you became one of us. God, you took on sin on the cross. Scriptures say that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We can have mercy over our sin, God, because you were dealt the punishment for our sin on the cross and we can hear mercy from the throne room of heaven. And you lived the life that we never could. You were the perfect sacrifice. So the blessing of righteousness is accredited to our account. That gives us full access to God. That gives us his love, unshakable. God, when you look at your people who have trusted in you, you see Jesus. And for anybody here tonight who doubts whether God loves them, would they in turn look to the cross and see what God did for them? And if they place their faith in Jesus here tonight, would they know that when they put their head on their pillow tonight and God looks at them, he sees nothing but Jesus. He's never disappointed in Jesus. He never looks at Jesus and says, I wish you would do more. He never looks at Jesus and says, I wish you'd be a better person. He never looks at Jesus and says, would you just buck up? But he looks at Jesus and he says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. If we have placed our faith in Jesus, we have that same pronouncement over us. Oh God, I pray for the person in this room that has not placed their faith in Jesus. Would they be humble tonight? 
Would they lay aside their self-righteousness? Would they lay aside their sin? And would they come to you with hands open? And would you do another miracle here tonight? Would you bring the spiritually dead and make them alive? It's in your son's mighty name that I pray. Amen.